Hello again, my friends, and welcome to Journeys in Soundbox. This show is a series of conversations where I learn from smart friends, or in this case, my fiance, the wonderful, beautiful, and brilliant Janine, has been in HR functions of two high growth startups and is currently leading the people function at Density, which I've written a little bit about before. It's a very cool startup. Uh, they went from 40 employees to 180 in the past year and a half, which is an incredible lift uh, that she has been really in the center of. And uh, we get into that experience here today by exploring HR for startups, which is something I've had a front row seat too for years. I think it is very commonly overlooked, uh, misunderstood, and underinvested in specifically. Uh, so we start by dispelling some myths, then we get into the details of building culture, getting feedback as a company, giving feedback to employees, hiring, firing, and what those playbooks look like at different stages of companies. Um, if you are a founder or a leader, I think you're going to find this episode incredibly valuable. And if you do find it valuable, please take 30 seconds to leave a quick review or text this episode to a friend as you're listening. Those are the two most helpful things in the world to a new podcast like this, and I super appreciate it. Now, please enjoy this conversation arriving at your ears in three, two, one. I am lucky enough to have gotten sort of a backstage pass to HR for the last however many years. Mm. So I feel like I have this kind of sort of x-ray vision into this whole world that it goes very much underappreciated and misunderstood and underutilized. And I hope that we can do a little bit of setting the record straight today great um do you think we can start with the misperceptions of of hr oh i feel like that's a good a good chapter to start and then we'll kind of go through the story arc of all the pieces and parts and tactics yeah i think tv shows like the office and office space have done HR disservice and they have furthered a stereotype of uh, stodgy, archaic um, teams and coworkers whose existence is to enforce rules and make your life more difficult when in fact it's truly the opposite. Um, that is the opposite of our goal, but I, I don't think the Tobies of the world help with the perception of HR. <laughs> no. Um, and the, the term HR itself is quite archaic. We don't call it personnel anymore. Um, what is it now? Uh, it's tre trending toward people. Okay. So it's mm -hmm. the people team mm -hmm. or the people function? Yeah. Okay. Um, and you said it's not really meant to enforce black and white rules, although, of course, there are some. Um what what is it then i mean are you, are you constantly sort of having to like the perception of hr is very policy driven is that not true there is a lot of policy and there's a lot of compliance and regulation and that is that depends on the country and in the case of the us it depends on the state and even the city in some cases um so there is a lot of hard and fast legal compliance but HR itself, I think, is one of the most gray areas of an organization. Um, and it's all about the company's interpretation of and their philosophy of how they want to treat their people. Interesting. So you're constantly, like, you're constantly making, I don't know, judgment calls about how to interpret things or how to allocate things or 
Yeah. And also the, the exceptions that you want to make. When you have a policy, oftentimes there are exceptions to the rule and being comfortable with the exceptions and why and still being able to sleep at night. One of the other sort of misconceptions uh, is that HR has this kind of um, that is meant to hold employees accountable exclusively Um, when really like I have seen time and time again behind the scenes, you're kind of fighting for the employees. I think, yeah, employees, team members, particularly those who are early in their career and don't understand how an HR organization is there to help them, um, likely never see all of the tiny little micro battles that we fight on behalf of employees behind the scenes. And that extends from everything like enriching employee benefits and generous time off and leave policies and trying new cool shit. Um, and am I allowed to swear here? Yeah. Like, um, <laughs> Do you know me? <laughs> and I think employees only ever see or interact with HR during during difficult times and it's rare for an employee to proactively reach out to us when things are going great yeah so they don't often see these like micro little positive things that we're doing on behalf of the employee and yes of course a a people organization is in place to act in service of the company but we also act in service of the individuals um and do our absolute best to do right by people Mm -hmm. um Something that I know you've heard me say 500 times, you can already know what I'm going to say based on your laugh, is the people team are people too. And I think it's really easy to lose sight of the fact that the people making these policies are impacted by their own policies mm-hmm. um, and that we we are human beings with feelings also. Yeah, you tend to get treated like, I don't know, almost like a contractor internally, like it you are a service organization within the company um, and you're kind of... We are. We are internal know. customer support and yeah. our customers happen to be our peers, which is also something you've heard me say yeah. 500 times. And people come in real hot, demanding shit. Yeah. Oh, like yeah. you don't have other stuff <laughs> to do. <laughs> um, I think it's easy to lose sight of the fact that our customer is the entire company. Mm-hmm. And when an employee is, has an issue, it is all consuming for them. Um, but we have many, many customers, and I think it's easy to lose sight of the fact that uh, we are spread generally thin um, and support the entire organization, but we do our absolute best to treat every issue and every question and initiative with the same care um, because everyone is equally important. Yeah. I mean, spread thin, I think... Um... Is it under, I, something that I will probably keep advocating for is or trying to build a case for is like over resourcing HR because I think mm. it's so under like to me from my perspective it's a little bit obvious that it is like upstream of all of the good things that come out of every other department. You um, also are deeply biased. I, mean, yes. <laughs> I am extremely biased, um, but it seems it, yeah, it, it seems always like you are spread thin. It's very easy to just see. Um, I know one of your other standard jokes is like, I run a PL, but there's only an L. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
and it's easy to just see that as a cost center instead of actually like the starter engine of the engine of the company from which all other good things come. Yeah. And I guess to that point, payroll is, I would say at 95% of companies, maybe even more, the single biggest line item on their company's Mm -hmm. P&L. And a lot of times the second is their facilities, their offices, the costs, the rent, everything associated with physical spaces. That's generally way up there also. And those, I mean, payroll, obviously, but um, the the facility side also at times falls into HR. So we are massive, massive cost center, but with also without human beings, you have nothing. For um, now. <laughs> I want to go back to um, a, a little bit of the piece about uh, sort of fighting for for employees as often as you fight, mm-hmm. um, not fight against them, but like on behalf of them. How much time do you spend, do you think, like holding holding employees accountable to the company versus holding the company accountable on behalf of employees? I'm probably 70% of my time is quietly fighting behind the scenes on behalf of employees. Mm. Our CEO would probably agree with that. <laughs> Might think it's even higher. Um, yeah, 70%. But, but that's not obvious to team members because most of the things that you fight for end up getting coming from their managers or the CEO, right? I think that is that is common a lot of places. Um and something that I really, really appreciate about Density is that our our CEO does a great job of handing the microphone, I guess, so to speak, to those who who really did the work. Um, and he allows the good news to be shared by those who kind of carried it across the finish line. And he also really, really takes and shoulders the weight of bad news as the CEO. And that is, an, I think, an exceptional quality in a CEO, one who amplifies great work and mm-hmm. shoulder shoulders the burdens of the business. Yeah. Um, so speaking of the CEO. Um, mm-hmm. Hi, Andrew. <laughs> Hi, Andrew. Shout out to Andrew Farrell, the CEO of Density. This podcast is not sucking up to Andrew in any way, Um, (laughs) but we will uh, like talk to me about the relationship between the CEO and the people team, Um, because I think some of those seems in response. It's not obvious who's responsible Mm -hmm. for what. I I think this might be a controversial opinion to have, but I think the CEO is on the people team. Um, the the people team. It exists to act in service of every team at the company. And we are almost on every team. Um, and so so is the same with the CEO. Um, all roads lead to the CEO and the people team supports all roads. Yeah. And I someone once said to me that the two loneliest positions at a company are your head of HR and your CEO. And I do genuinely believe that is incredibly true. Um because the um, the burden of information that you have is hard at times. Um, and you also, your relationship with your peers is different. You are perceived differently. And in my situation, my boss is not the CEO. 
Um, my boss is our chief of staff, but my relationship with the CEO is equally as important as my relationship with the boss. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially a company like Density, where I mean, Andrew's very involved in the people function. Like, I know he interviews every candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, he is involved in all the policies, which I don't assume all CEOs are. No, I would say most aren't. Um, I think it's easy for a CEO to live most intensely in, in product yeah. um, and marketing. And Andrew particularly does a very, very good job of um, equal care and attention across the organization. And unlike any other CEO I've ever worked with before, he cares so deeply at the individual level for every single employee. Um, he also interviews every single employee before we go to offer. And that, that single act is a massive time, um, burden that he is very, very happy. And I guess burden has such a negative connotation, but it's something that he's so, so happy to do because he feels equal accountability to getting hiring right. Mm. Is that the main reason for it? I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's an amazing signal to candidates mm-hmm. and it's an amazing signal to the team. I, I think it's, it has so many benefits. Um, it creates shared accountability in hiring decisions. Um, it, it is another kind of check and balance to ensure that what the team sees in a candidate, he also sees. And it also, sometimes we tell him, go in there and sell. <laughs> like, yeah. There is no person more qualified to sell this company and close a candidate than the CEO themselves. How, how much of recruiting is that kind of like, does it truly feel like selling? Is it is it like dating? Is it like selling? Is it like marketing? Uh, all of the above in a <laughs> weird blended way. Okay. Um, recruiting is very much a two-way street. And you are testing the waters with a candidate just and getting to know them just as much as you are showing the candidate what you're all about. And I, you've also heard me say this 500 times. I self-identify as the world's worst recruiter because I very much believe in showing candidates the company's underbelly and painting a very, very realistic landscape of what it's like and the current hurdles you're facing because every company has them and really, really setting a candidate up for success to come in and understand what they're getting into. Because if you don't, then a candidate might leave a job, especially if you're poaching a candidate from a job they love. Yeah, They're leaving a place that they love and potentially coming to a place where they don't understand what they're walking into. And what a disservice to the new employee and the company itself. So let's talk more about the the recruiting function, and then I think we should expand into like all of the other parts of people because it's a it's a more complicated function than <laughs> people tend to assume. Um, it is a lot yeah. more than just recruiting, um, mm-hmm. but even even recruiting itself is you know there, there's like I don't I don't want to put words in your mouth. So like, what are all the pieces of recruiting? Recruiting generally actually in startups is oftentimes split into two different kind of distinct functions. There's mm-hmm. recruiting and then technical recruiting and the technical roles are filled and sourced quite differently. 
um, the engineers, the product teams, the product designers, um, filling the technical roles because of the state of the market is more difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they generally have a dedicated team to that. Um, and then th- there are recruiters themselves. There are sourcers who source qualified candidates. Uh, there is often a, at big companies, a small army of recruiting coordinators who are handling the logistics end to end of the entire candidate experience. Every interview, every Zoom link, every feedback link, making sure every candidate is in your ATS, applicant tracker system. Don't quote me on that. And Lever or Greenhouse are the two most popular. But all of those people generally work in tandem um, on specific roles or are supporting specific teams or functions within a company. Yeah. And how many roles uh, can a recruiter like fill per year or per month or something? (laughs) A recruiter? (laughs) Um, I mean, the general rule of thumb, I think like, so as you described that, I'm picturing like, like, holy shit, that's like a whole extra sales organization. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, you have, you have your leads, you have your SDRs, you have your like closers, you have, and then you have the hiring manager who has to get kind of like pulled into this. And in your case, the CEO, um, and a ton of roles to fill. So that, that is like a incredible, that is an incredibly complex machine. Yeah. Um, it isn't easy to answer that with a singular number. There's so many things that come into play, like the seniority of roles you're filling across the board. Are you hiring 20 backend engineers. It is easier to hire 20 backend engineers than 15 different types of engineers because you're generating one pipeline of the same skill set. And also the, the state of the market, your business, your your employer brand, um Stripe has no no problem finding qualified candidates, yeah. you know, but if you aren't one of these kind of tech darlings and you have to work harder for people to to get to know you and to meet you and to find you then that that's more difficult yeah um, i imagine especially the more niche roles or especially a first role at a company when they're yeah yeah and in our particular case we we are a hardware software company we're hiring hardware engineers who are deeply deeply technical and specialized and we're also hiring for sales and marketing and accounting and HR. And I think the, the breadth of what we're hiring for is very varied. Um, we are lucky to have the single greatest recruiter I've ever worked with in my entire life. Shout her out. Shout out to McKenzie. Um, <laughs> and it is working with exceptional people really is just such an accelerant to the hiring process. Um, and exceptional, exceptional recruiters care most deeply about the candidate experience and rolling out the red ca- carpet for every candidate. And that also increases your your likelihood of closing a candidate, which then in turn means you can hire more people. So uh, we'll, I think we should go deeper into that when we kind of go through the, the employee journey. Um, mm-hmm. But let's do kind of a broad view of like the milestones of uh, like what companies feel like at different stages uh, from an HR perspective, Uh, like your, your sort of, um, I don't know, the phase changes almost. So the 
inflection points yeah, in a business. Yeah, inflection points is a good word for it. Um, I think the first is when you as a company can no longer spontaneously go out for a drink together. Okay. So like, I don't know, 10 people, 15 people? Like, like... 12, 12 to 15. Okay. When you can't just on a Friday afternoon be like, hey, let's go grab a beer around the corner at the local watering hole. Yeah. And like that becomes logistically more difficult. Okay. Uh, things feel different. I think the the 25 to 30 milestone is when you need a dedicated HR person for the first time. Okay. So if you're a growing company, that's your first, the first time you hire a HR, mm-hmm. a couple dozen. And, and what does that first HR hire look like? Generalist. So part recruiter, part like. Understands basics of, of compensation, re- can run payroll, be- benefits administration, hiring, onboarding, offboarding, like everything. That sounds like a hard job. I know it's a hard job because it's the job that you do. <laughs> and well, and ideally somebody who can scale, like if you're expecting to grow quickly, somebody who can figure out how to fill those roles and l- turn them into full-time jobs over yeah. the next couple of years. Um, okay. So a couple dozen people, um, things start to get professionalized. That's your first HR uh, hire. What is, what is the next inflection point? 50. It's when you have a lawyer in-house. Um, it's when you need structure and you also need to be more conscious of setting precedent mm. and that every decision you make for an individual is, um, this is such a negative way of saying this. So maybe I need to reword this, but it, it's a decision that can be used against you. Yeah. Um, and just being so conscious of precedents that you're setting and the accept when you're making an exception and why, um, and then I think the 100 person mark is where no people don't know everyone anymore. And that's where I think culture needs to transition into something that you are actively working on, not just a passive kind of blend of the sum of personalities. And then at 250 is when you are, you are a company, you are an organization and but 250, it doesn't change until you, I think you hit like a thousand. Like you have a lot of time before you feel another big shift. Yeah. What what changes at 250 when you like, when you be- become a company, quote unquote? Policy becomes more formal. There's more of it. I think it's for a lot of companies, a time in which some legacy policies fade away and get kind of transitioned out because they're no longer sustainable. And it's when a company feels like more like a job and less like a lifestyle. Yeah, probably especially to the early employees who were there before Mm -hmm. the policies and they were used to exceptions and they know about the quote unquote good old days. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Um, So with that sort of groundwork, let's talk about the like all of the component parts of HR. Um, Depends where you are. So uh, pick pick your milestone maybe and and talk us through it because but like as soon as you get to a few dozen you were kind of like you need a generalist who does all these things but I think most people don't appreciate all of the roles that are HR and and you kind of yeah. say when you go into a company of that size like these responsibilities tend to be kind of scattered around the team yeah there's definitely different like buckets of types of work and depending on what stage a company is at there are either people who keep to multiple of them or people who are very, very specialized. 
public companies have an equity admin who exclusively works in the administration of the equity of the company. Um, where that is not something that a 24 person company would ever, ever need. And I, I guess the main buckets are the first and most tactical and numerical is the total rewards category, which is compensation, uh, benefits, brokering, the equity administration, um, the what the company provides to employees in exchange for the work that they do for the company. There is the traditional HR practice, which includes the HR business partners and the day-to-day facilitating and helping employees with with anything. Um, so they are kind of those who keep out after the employees and the leaders in different departments, organizational design, planning. There is learning and development, mm-hmm. which is how you grow and train and teach your team. Um, some organizations, uh, payroll is housed within HR and some places it sits within finance, sometimes facilities, the office spaces sit within people. Mm-hmm. Um, at times, the employee experience and program and employee communications or internal communications can sit within people. And uh, in our case, IT. Oh, yeah. Extra fun. Um, will you will you expand on internal communications a little bit? I think that's something... Um, I know what the words mean, but I don't know what all the responsibilities sort of go into that. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of employees um, may not either or teams. It's a function that's easy to miss because it kind of happens naturally, Mm -hmm. but increasingly chaotically probably until someone owns it. Um, Also, I didn't say recruiting in that list, but I felt that's a whole completely different like side. That's the other side of the coin of the people world. Um, The... And employee communications function oftentimes sits within the marketing organization because of the com- the comms function within marketing, the PR side of the house. But employee communications exists to be- serve as a voice of the company to its employees. Um, and that is everything from holidays and open enrollment schedules and changes within the organization and annual planning and goals and an operating cadence that the company operates within. And it, it is, I think it's important for a company to really, really start honing its voice as a company mm-hmm. and removing the burden of individuals always being the person to have to share information. Um, so something that I have done previously in my career is given, give a name to internal communications and it also increases the ease of employees interacting with it, even if the person in charge of it change, changes hands. Um, can you can you give us like specific examples from Casper? Because <laughs> I I can't remember any of them, but I know that they were incredibly yeah. thoughtful. One of the most fun things about Casper was that bedtime and morning routines were ripe with very adorable puns that we could use for everything. Um, and our internal communications function was called early bird and our, uh, L and D team was called night owl. Hmm. And so every, we would send emails from early bird at casper.com 
And employees always knew that if they were in search of something and they didn't know where to start, they could just start by searching early bird. Hmm. And even after I left the organization, they, the person who ultimately took over that carried on that name. So it's not like you're having to search for a different person. Um, and it removes the burden of being the individual sharing the information. Mm-hmm. Like it's bad news. It's not like, oh, Janine gave me bad news today. I'm mad at her. Yeah. yeah. A change in the a policy that isn't super favorable yeah. by the employees. You are removing the individual and it is putting the onus on the company. Mm. That's smart. Yeah. It seems like a good policy. Um, okay. So that's internal employee, internal communications um, and employee experience encompasses stuff like a lot of training um, systems and organization and how employees find information. And we, we use notion um, and it includes often diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging events, events, um, employee resource groups, um, building community. Okay. Um, and I know that you said this, uh, I don't know, you almost took it for granted, like uh, the basic HR function. And then you were like HR business partners. And this is actually like a term that confused me the first time I heard it. Um, um you know, like kind of the basic block and tackling of HR, um, or people now, like what do people go to their HR business partners for? Like, what is that r- relationship? And, uh, if someone has a baby on the way, we got to know. Um, if someone needs a visa and we need to do a visa activity for an employee, um, if someone's having an issue with their manager or a peer and needs to talk through it and figure out how to work better together, um, if someone decides to leave the company, if someone wants to apply for a different job internally and is interested in transitioning, yeah. um, it's far reaching. Um, and the HR business partner often serves as almost a catch all. Um, if someone doesn't know where to go, you can come to us and we can air traffic control you a little. Um, it is a, it is a very difficult job. Um, and it is one in which you oftentimes are dealing with hard situations and doing it as thoughtfully as possible. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that I think makes you incredibly good at this job is like your strong uh, sort of moral compass and conscientiousness. And like, it's just over and over again, I feel like these hard things come up. Um, and now that you list them, I'm like, oh, there's a whole bunch of really good reasons why somebody might not want to go to their manager or, you know, in startups, you kind of default to like, you know, the COO or something is usually like, the head of HR, yeah. they're like, oh, that's kind of, is a special person that you feel like you can go to with that kind of information. We are your safe place. We are your local bartender and therapist and hairdresser and uh, priest. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like absolutely the opposite of the, of the Toby law mm-hmm. enforcement. Yeah. Like, um, it's almost like you're the account rep for a customer service for the company for employees. For peers yeah yeah for your peers um which yeah you can when you put it that way hard job um okay so how does so taking now now these like parts of all the components of hr and the and the milestones of a company like how does that 
this grand thing like unfold slowly over time as as the company grows. How do you build out an employee or people organization? Yeah, I mean, we we're going from you know a twenty person company um, that is maybe hiring its first generalist or starting to feel the pains of of like oh god like this hurts but we don't know what we're missing we don't mm-hmm. know who to hire like what are the crack the first cracks that kind of start to show and then maybe we can like overlay these sort of two things the i think it's important to think about what where the work currently sits mm-hmm. and where there is a unfair burden on people and what type of work and that's where i would start in determining what to hire for next and a good example of this was when I started at Density, we didn't have a recruiter. Um, the person who had been doing absolutely everything, soup to nuts, related to people, um, and she's a total Swiss Army knife, Would was hiring every single human being and scheduling every single interview, managing all of the insurance, everything. And wow. she... A majority of her time was spent on recruiting, which meant that other things had to be pushed to a back burner and hiring managers um, had an increased presence and ownership in their recruiting process. Because when you don't have a recruiting organization, we are all recruiters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think look at where the work sits and how you could alleviate and increase bandwidth for someone if you hired someone dedicated to it. Um, it's so situational. Do you need a recruiter? I don't know. Are you hiring? <laughs> if you're not, definitely no. <laughs> um, but if you are growing, then yes. And recruiting is an interesting example because if you are going to be going through a hiring spurt, but on, on ultimately see it kind of tapering off, then you might not necessarily need someone in-house and bringing on a full-time resource dedicated to it. That is when I would recommend you leverage agencies. Um, I mean, there are thousands of them that are exist for this very purpose. So really, really focusing on where there is burden and where you see longevity and sustained work needed, and then kind of going from there. Okay. Um, so we bring in this generalist, we bring in a recruiter, like when do, when do sort of specialists enter in on some of these other um, fields? I think the general rule of thumb is that it's like 5% of the company. Okay. Um, and is that right? Yeah. Yeah. One at 20, two at 40. Yeah. Um, I think your fourth HR person is when things start, you start to define swim lanes. Okay. That's when you start to say, like, you know, you're the HR business partner. You are uh, HRIS, Human Resources Information System. Yeah. (laughs) Um, That's your benefits, your sources of data and sources of truth. Um, You have someone, eventually you'll have someone who's completely dedicated to benefits Mm -hmm. administration. Um, That poor soul. You'll have equity administrators. You'll have... Uh, an office manager for every space. You'll have multiple recruiting coordinators. You'll have an L and D team that is, and depending on what your company does, uh, potentially doing a lot of training. Um, so it, it is all incredibly dependent on the nature of the company 
um, a new role that I actually just saw start to pop up is remote experience, mm. which is a part of our new reality. And Meta is hiring a head of remote experience, which I do not think is a job anyone has ever had before. Yeah. And we are in, we are two years into our new reality. And I think people are perhaps just now accepting that this is our forever and we're never going back to how it was, but figuring it out, companies are definitely figuring it out together um, because there is no expert in this new way of working. Yeah. We got, uh, when we tweeted out questions or requests for questions uh, for our mm. HR, for startups expert, there were a number of questions around like, oh, it's so hard to build a culture remote, you know, what's yeah. different about hiring and connecting people remotely. And um, I know Density is a very remote company how do you think about something that i think really really helped density ease into the pandemic what a weird sentence um was that the company was already significantly remote prior to the pandemic so they the team understood and knew how to work remotely and there's very much a culture of written documentation that is helpful um Something that caught me off guard a little bit was that there is no emailing. Huh. I get almost no internal emails. It's all Slack? All Slack. And it's just a very different way of working. Um, and I think it's helpful when a company defines tools of communication and their purpose. Yes. I wish you got some emails because then you could leave them unread. <laughs> I feel like Slack, Slack just... You can mark unread. Slack just demands such immediacy yeah. i feel like that and that, that that is something that we're working through right now is the, the the sla yeah of slack and if we're treating it like email and more long form content then how are we um creating space in our employees days to focus instead of feeling like you're constantly monitoring a, a chat inbox is do you think slack is a synchronous tool or an asynchronous tool I think that depends on who you ask. I, I tweeted that question once because I was we were dealing with this at Zarly and hundreds and hundreds of responses dead even 50-50. Yeah. And I was like, well, there's your problem right there. Yeah. Um, I think it depends who you ask. I think it depends the, on the company. I think it depends on the role that you're in. I think especially in HR when any Slack can be an emergency. Yeah. Um, it, it's less async than you would like. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, so we've done the, the functions and kind of the stages. Um, let's talk a little bit about like the playbooks and the systems that you put in place. So mm. um, I've seen, I've, I've bared witness to conversations where like overwhelmed CEOs of growing startups, like who have never encountered a real HR department before, like have a conversation with you about like, they're like, it's chaos. It's spreadsheets and emails. Like, what do I do? Um, and you're like, you need this system for this. You need this system for this. You need this system for this. And they're like, oh. Um, and I wonder if we can do sort of like a taste of that um, that checklist, I guess. The most obvious one is you need a way to pay people. <laughs> the lowest hanging fruit. Um, and I think the the tools and systems are almost like a tree ring situation like the at the very center of the tree you have your hris system which is 
something that you need to have and is something that the CEO or the COO did three demos and picked one kind of blindly. And you're probably either on Gusto or JustWorks or Zenefits. And that is the what is ultimately considered the company's source of truth. Um, it is where every employee gets onboarded. It is home to their compensation. It's where people request time off. It's where you get your W-2. It's where you change your address. So we can send you your W-2. Um, it's a tool that even if the company changes tools or if you leave the company, you still have access to it for seven years. It is home to sensitive information. It's where we keep a log of all of your documents. Um, and it is... A lot of times, especially nowadays, it serves as a lot more. Um, mm-hmm. They're becoming much more rich yeah. in their offerings. Um, but that is the most basic and the most o- obvious. That often is also home to payroll, mm-hmm. particularly for early companies um, and open enrollment. For benefits. For benefits, yes. Yeah. Um, so... That is the the number one. And, yeah, the, the core of everything. Yeah. Yeah. And everything kind of feeds into that. Um, different tools have different bells and whistles and different things kind of embedded within them. But that is your number one HQ okay. above and beyond everything. Something else that I feel very deeply about maintaining is a second source of truth that is very much company owned it is something that is not within a system and i guess the irony is that we use google sheets so that is not company owned either but um having a second copy of every employee every all their comp history their equity history a list of every employee who has been terminated voluntarily or involuntarily um and it is serves as kind of a second source of root truth we call ours the central directory <laughs> And it is home to all of our employees. And, and the importance of that is because you never know when you're going to need that for any variety of reasons. Ease of access to information. I can sort and filter by every person on the sales team by when they started or um, understand when was the last time a person got a comp adjustment and what is their full comp history. And a lot of HR tools also show you that, but the ease of access of it is exceptional. Um and I use it every single day. Yeah. I've imagined a lot of ideas or proposals or whatever, like things come up all the time that without that historical context, mm-hmm. um, be easy to make, easy to make bad decisions. Um, okay. So what's the next rung out? Tools that help with how the company seeks feedback and receive and gives feedback. Um, we particularly use Contramp. Um, there's also Lattice and for us, it's home to our engagement surveys, but also our performance evaluations, how we give employees formal feedback and also how the company seeks formal feedback from employees. Mm-hmm. So, and both of those live in culture and, mm-hmm. um, and you think of that as kind of like, that's the circle of life. That's how we learn what employees want. And that's mm-hmm. how we inform them, how you know we're yeah. viewing their performance. Um, okay. And that syncs with our HRIS. So every employee who joins automatically gets mm. uploaded into culture. Cool. Um, yeah. I want to come back to feedback briefly, but let's let's do the third ring um, before mm. we do. 
The third ring is your like bells and whistles, your accessories, if you will. Um, and we have, we personally have a peer bonus program in which employees can give out peer bonuses to their peers who go above and beyond. Um, it is, um, I'm trying to think of another good example. Learning, learning and development platforms and tools, um, this also doesn't address any recruiting tools. I would put your ATS, your applicant tracker in the first ring. Yeah. Um, we use Lever and Lever has been good to us. Um, employee knowledge base. Yeah. So here's an ethical question. <laughs> is it an HR, is Notion an HR tool? Is Slack? Is that know. a company tool? Yeah. Um, Who, who's responsible for? Yeah. Who's responsible for tending to those and keeping to them? Yeah. Um, at a certain point, IT kind of takes over the, the system administration and access, but how, how is that handled in the interim? How does, how do you make sure every employee gets a Slack account? How do you manage your fleet of devices, aka laptops? Yeah. Um, how do you know who has a monitor at home and who doesn't? And there are outside tools that can do that and services you can use for smaller companies. Um, and then it kind of eventually transitions to a homegrown solution when you build out an IT function. Okay. Um, okay. So let's circle back to let's circle back to feedback because um, mm-hmm. I think this is probably yeah. another thing that is a really weak motion in younger companies, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and something that probably has to get installed. But it's also really, um, I imagine, it's a, a very important piece of how you steer the company and how you steer the function and keep learning. Um, what type of feedback are you referencing? Uh, please list my options of feedback. I think there are two. Yeah. One is feedback given by the company slash managers to employees and in some cases peers. And then there is feedback sought by the company on the company. And both are incredibly important. And younger, smaller companies tend to forget about both of them. I think there is this like idyllic place that small companies live in, in which they say, we're very open and we're transparent and there's room for everyone to be open and honest here. And if they have something to say, they can come forward and say that. And it will be heard and received. And there is not a single air of retaliation. And that is a wonderful, wonderful thought. Um, and it is also easiest for people in positions of power to feel that way. And or, or even for just really small trusted groups. I think it's a lot more reasonable when there's eight people in a room to think that that's how that's going to work. Yeah. But it's also, um, I think, easier for, it's much more difficult to feel safe and comfortable if you represent a minority group. Um, and creating a place for anonymous feedback, which is, uh, a battle that I was willing to fight and it was a mountain I was willing to die on when I joined the team. And it is one that I'm really, really glad and grateful that we implemented. Um, on the company feedback side, we do four surveys a year. Every quarter we send a poll survey and in the summer we send an annual big engagement survey and it is completely anonymous Um, We can sort by demographic so we can learn how people feel about their manager or 
their their team. Um, we can understand if men feel differently than women do, um, how tenure impacts how engaged you are. We even look at time zone oh. as a remote company. Um, do our central time zone and eastern time zone friends feel like they have less work-life balance? Yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it makes sense. Why is that? And we have uncovered some really interesting things and tested some really cool things as a result of what we have learned about ourselves through anonymous feedback. Yeah, I, I'd love if you'd take us through one of the, you know, something that you gleaned from a survey and how it informed policy. Yeah. Um, the, I think this, someone recently asked me, what is the single thing you are most proud of that you've done at Density? And I think this is it. I, after our first, survey. It was spring of 2021. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, spring of 2021. Time is an illusion I know. when you're staying um, at home so we all the are, time. We are nearly a year into the p- pandemic and we learned that our, our female team members felt um, less engaged and had significantly uh, worse work-life balance than our male team members. And I, I believe there's a lot of outside factors that contribute to that as well, but it was very, very clear that women took on a unjust burden of school, Zoom school and ho- the, at the, in the home through the pandemic, and women felt like they had absolutely no space in their life. And as a result, um, we implemented what, a program we call Black Fridays, in which the company takes roughly every other Friday off. So we run a four and a half day work week, kind of. <laughs> and it was, it started off as a beta in April of last year that we are still doing today. And it has completely changed people's ability to have space in their life. And I mean, I get so many amazing notes of dads who say, I never have time at home while the kids are at school to tackle this to-do list and the ability for people to have a day off during the middle of the week to get things done for themselves personally that aren't on the weekend. Um, We saw absolutely no impact to our bottom line output, anything. The company is still as productive. Um, And there is definitely a different feeling and sense of calm on Mondays following a Flex Friday, which I think is really interesting. People feel infinitely more recharged after a three-day weekend than a two-day weekend. Yeah. And just like time to clear that personal to-do list. Yeah. And, yeah. and that I maybe we should ask this question next time. I think uh, also decrease of Sunday scaries. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so what, what are some of the things that you ask on that, on those surveys? Um, it depends. The poll survey, well, every survey has the same five questions that we ask in every single survey. They are the same. They will always be the same. And that is things like, I am proud to work at density. I see myself working here in two years time. Um, and it measures, it's almost a more sophisticated ENPS Mm, score. And then we have categories that, that kind of change in and out. Um, we recently completed our first performance review cycle, and we asked a bunch of questions in our poll survey about that. 
and how employees felt. Did they feel like their performance was managed fairly? Did their manager engage in the process? Did Were they surprised by the feedback that they heard? So the the remaining questions are based on our moment in time and the information we're looking to seek. Um, the big engagement survey has a, everything from leadership to the CEO, to their manager, to alignment across the company, um, learning and development, and they feel like there's growth opportunities. And the really awesome thing about these tools is they are, they, they hold your hand through it and they have awesome, awesome uh, team members who are behavioral scientists who craft surveys on your bat, like templates almost that you can use and utilize because they are experts in their field at how to a- ask these questions. If you want to focus one on exit surveys, they they guide you through that and how to set one up. So it, it's not something that you need to completely create from scratch, which I think is also helpful. Um, they created a bunch of surveys during the pandemic about remote work and comfort around returning to work. So they, they're on it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that reminds me also like, are, what are the other sort of feedback and mechanisms for the company? So you've got, you've got, uh, exit interviews. Um, it sounds like in there, do you, do you get value, value out of those? Yeah. Really? Yeah. That's uh, people are very honest. <laughs> when there's nothing <laughs> when to lose. Out. Yeah. Um, I I love exit interviews because one, it is an opportunity to just thank an employee um, and you get a lot of honest feedback and they raise a lot of flags. Um, the employees are the ones who are out there in the field every day. And especially in startups, people are have friends and people talk. And when someone says, I'm leaving, um, a lot of times that that triggers a lot of conversation and that employee often uh, acts on behalf of other concerns that they see around them. Um, They'll often come to us and say like, I would be worried and like pay special attention to this team. I think there, there's a little bit of risk there. Um, And they really not most employees on their way out want the company to be successful and they give good honest feedback that is rooted in just trying to help. What's the most common reason for leaving a company you hear? Um, managers. Um, people don't leave for comp. In extreme situations, they might, but people don't leave. And so many people have said this in the past. People don't leave companies, they leave bad managers. And I do believe that's true. Um, if you are in love with your manager, most people aren't even open to entertaining the option of leaving. And a good manager is one that provides honest, fair feedback that follows up, that is present, that can help an employee see their path of growth. Um, and someone that an employee genuinely and consistently feels like is in their corner. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, what, speaking of comp, um, (laughs) where where are we speaking about that? Yeah. Well, you said people don't leave, uh, people don't leave comp, uh, or leave for compensation, monetary reasons. Um, 
one of the other things that tends to be haphazard that I feel like uh, needs to be enforced is, is usually like comp leveling or bands and mm-hmm. title like titles that accompany them. Um, mm-hmm. Is that like a is that a tough, messy process where there's all these like sort of individual decisions that were made and you have to come in and say like, yo, we need some we need to like put these things in perspective of each other. Yeah, well, internal equity, I think is what you're referencing yeah uh, yeah that's a yeah fairness between equity is a equality yes not in terms of shares and ownership of the company but in terms of equitable practice across individuals and i think it takes a while for a company to understand its comp philosophy but it's very important to have and it's also hard it's expensive it's the most tangible and the limiting piece of it and something that you have to consider is who is your peer um as a company as a company yeah and we at density we pay generously um which we're lucky to be able to do but we also don't consider the fangs of the world to be our peers and the Apples and the Googles and the Facebooks have levers they can pull that we can't. We do not have an equivalent of RSUs. We aren't a public company. And that means that our compensation structures are different and we can do different things that those companies can't or aren't doing. And a good example of that is it's really compelling to tell a candidate, hey, we take every other Friday off. And they're like, holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) Um. And that goes a long way and that's free for us. So we, I think understanding your philosophy, figuring out how geography plays a role. Um, Do you pay an employee in who employees who have identical backgrounds and identical roles, but one is living in Tulsa, Oklahoma, one is living in Denver and one is living in San Francisco, do you pay them the same or do you pay them two different amounts, three different amounts? Um, And understanding your philosophy and how you want to handle this is, I think, important to define. Are there any like catastrophic mistakes that you can make early on? Because it's like, it's so hard to take comp away, right? Like if you overpay one person, does that mean eventually down the line, you're going to be overpaying dozens of people or you have to manage someone out or something like that? Uh, no. Um, I, the smaller the company is generally the more underpaid. They <laughs> I think um, I, when we were talking about our comp philosophy and how we wanted to handle this, the state of the market, um, which is bananas. I mean, the hiring market right now is wild, wild west. And it is a uh, candidate's world, not an employer's world right now. And um, how we wanted to handle that internally was a big conversation that we had Um, because it's called, I use the term tenure tax. Someone should not be an employee who has been in the business for a while, should not be making less than someone who is in a similar role with a similar scope um, and similar expertise, they shouldn't be making less than someone who is just hired. And the company asking itself, would 
I pay more to hire this person again today? If the answer is yes, then that person needs to have a comp adjustment. Yeah. And is it common to go back and adjust team members comp based on We do it every market? single year for every single employee. Wow. Yeah. Is we, that because you're really good at your job or do most companies do that? Um, to me, that is doing the bare minimum. Okay. Um, I don't think every company does it and sees it that way, but um, it's often called market pricing where you go out into the market and say, hey, if we were to hire Carrie today, what would they make? And there's a delta of $17,000. And what are we going to do about it? Does that ever only ever go up, but doesn't really... Like you don't adjust down based on market pricing. Yeah, correct. Yeah, okay. um, similarly, um, one of those idyllic things that that small companies do um, is, is toss around ideas like flat organizations. Ugh. <laughs> and, and somebody is uh, another like sort of uh, Twitter question. I saw this question. Yeah, yeah. it was like, he's it, like, it seems like a scam. Is flat organizations like a real thing? Is it just only a thing for small companies? What What is your take on that? I think small companies, yeah, sure. It's flattish. Like generally <laughs> everyone kind of reports to the CEO. And then as companies become more complex and people become more specialized and you have more individual contributors, then there, there has to be hierarchy. Like you cannot have an, a CEO who has 20 direct reports who each have 30 direct reports. Like that, what a completely unsustainable way to operate and i well i un i think the intention of flat organizations is actually rooted in transparency mm. not lack of clarity of levels and i think you can have both and something i don't know a single employee who is like yeah i want a flat i want to go to a company that has a flat organization yeah, I feel like you hear people crying out for clarity much more often than yeah. I want um, less people between me and the CEO. Like, that's a weird thing to want. There are people who um, are conscious of their proximity to leadership or founders. Um, but at the end of the day, I think giving people clearly defined roles and clearly defined levels is much, much more valuable and transparent than saying this like charade of we're a flat organization. Um, there is a trend in titling and titles are changing. Um, C, the C-level is still very much pre prevalent, but how, do you, how does things like head of fit into the equation and using things like lead, instead of manager and the titling structure of uh, individual contributors is important. And I think something that employees often wrestle with is the expectation and the stereotype that the more successful you are in your career, the more people you directly manage. And I think something very important that we need to work on changing the stigma of is individual contributors have equal place and importance. And you can be an exceptionally senior individual contributor. And engineering organizations do this really well. Um, they, they have staff engineers, principal, uh, distinguished engineers. And you can basically be a VP as an individual contributor who is mm -hmm. 
exceptionally specialized and and well compensated yeah. and respected yeah. and yeah. yeah and making that as celebrated and important as the management track mm-hmm. and equally okay is some an area where I think we just collectively have work to do. And does that go through a similar process of um, sort of leveling or creating internal equity? Yeah. Because um, it, people, it's got to be clear. I don't know. People are always kind of clamoring for titles and people in different um, teams are more liberal with. Different teams have different um, ways of using titles. And how does a creative director compare to a director of manufacturing compared to a director of hr is it problematic like do people compare a, across the organization that way and um from time to time but i think the thing is that is more important is people understanding their own leveling and being very very clear with the company about leveling and this is something that um we are clear on from the manager track but less clear on for the maker track and how do they how do they port over <laughs> the translation between the two yeah. um because people jump in between the two of them and that should be celebrated and embraced let's talk about um another set of questions from from twitter would really all about not not firing humanely but like how to know how to communicate when it's okay like um when it when is like it a failure of a hiring process versus a manager versus the employee like there's a lot of reasons for an employment to end um Mm -hmm. and i think there's a lot of like you know the founders i talk to there's sometimes a lot of guilt or concern or fear or whatever around that around um, people leaving or, yeah either people leaving or people needing to be fired or people needing to be fired and not fired or like there's almost no positive feelings around, around that um but i think there could be or should be and i'm like you've seen more of this than just about anybody um so i'm curious how you you know how you look at that you know the end of an employment and all the reasons and thought that goes into it an employee is either voluntarily leaving the company or involuntarily leaving the company. And they're very different experiences. Yeah. One is one in which they tell you they're leaving. And one is one in which you tell them they are leaving, which is really not fun for anyone, mostly the employee. Right. And I think for voluntary churn, um, it's important to, and I think a lot of times the natural instinct is to, well, could we keep them? Could we fight for them? And you can throw a retention bonus and a promotion and new comp and a new title at them. But at the end of the day, that employee also made a conscious decision that they wanted to leave. And I I don't think anyone is going to retire at their the company that they're currently at. We mm-hmm. are, our, gener- our generation and the new workforce is staying at companies max five years on average. And some, I think I heard the other day, marketing team members stay on average two years at a company. I heard one time that the average tenure in all of San Francisco was like 11 months, which is like, <laughs> just insane. Um, but like my dad retired from a company that he worked at for, for more than 30 years. And 
we have just changed the way we think about employment mm-hmm. and embracing that if an employee decides that it's ultimately best for them to move on, the company wants what's best for the employee and what's best for itself. And what is best for the company and the employee is for that employee to leave if they want. Um, so I think being okay with that and embracing that and also turning your community of former employees into a celebrated thing, um, your alumni group. And how do you engage with past members of the team who still have many fingerprints left behind on the business? Yeah. And sometimes and equity and yeah. respect and, you yeah, know, they're, yeah. uh, they're often shareholders, um, still very much a tangible part of the company, but honoring them and past work and making it okay to say it's time to move on. And how often, um, I know another component of HR's responsibility in this, because this is another shared responsibility between the HR or sorry, people, um, <laughs> people and hiring managers and uh, anybody or sorry, active managers and anybody else is, is like following the procedures. And this is a point that is like, Mm. hard for everybody the unfun uh, side you're talking about the unfun i mean there is no fun side of somebody i think getting let go but um there are increasingly as you get bigger i think as we go up this you know 12 to 50 to 100 to 250 like this is a process that becomes very different um and more onerous the the reality is that no company will make completely perfect hiring decisions across the board. And that means that the the nature of the role might change. An employee might not be a great fit. They, they might be an asshole. And how a company decides to handle those is important. And one of the more black and white areas of HR Um There are a lot of laws around how you can terminate employees. And I think it's really easy for companies to say, but this is in the U.S. We have at-will employment. We can fire whoever we want, whenever we want, which is just really not true. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If you ask any HR team member, they would be like, yeah, but. (laughs) And I think the number one thing that I would just say over and over and over again on repeat is document everything. If you have an employee who is struggling or not performing well in the role, document it. Give feedback. Document how? Write it down. Send it to them. Written feedback Um, in emails. Yes. Performance reviews. And create their performance reviews in writing whether it's Slack or email, but create very clear precedent of communicating that the expectations are not being met. And also investing in how you help an employee meet them. Um, I think a lot of times an employee is not meeting expectations because the business hasn't set the individual up for success. And the shared accountability between an employee delivering and you setting them up to deliver mm-hmm. is very real. So document, um, get a good employment lawyer. <laughs> I want to speed out. Um, <laughs> outside the company. Uh, like yes. just, yeah. Yeah. Okay. There are out, there's outside counsel that specializes in employment law that can help. Um, 
And also remember that at the end of the day, if you are terminating an employee, you're, they're a human being and they chose to take a risk on you and your company. And don't forget to treat them like a human being on the way out. You said no hiring process is perfect, of course. Um, how do you how do you increase the odds of finding good, like the team members who will go the distance with you or or be there for a long time? How do you know when it's a failure of a hiring, hiring process versus a manager? Um, I think if if someone turns within ninety days, I think that is a failure on the the hiring decision and process. Um, no one joins a job with the intention of leaving within three months. And that is a signal that it just wasn't the right fit. Um, I think for us, the last CEO interview is huge. Um, And asking really, really thoughtful questions and doing thoughtful reference checks. Um, I, I like to ask insanely granular decision questions about things to try and dig in on if someone was on a team that accomplished something or if they themselves accomplished things. I ask granular questions about very tactical things to test willingness of getting in the weeds and getting your hands dirty and the no task is too small attitude. Um, something that I love that density does um, that they've always done that I don't want to say out loud. I don't want to reveal the whole thing. (laughs) We do a really, really fun and engaging exercise with all candidates as a part of our values screen. Um, And that it's generally not work-related, but it is a way to understand employee, a, a candidate and kind of how they would fit in and how they could add to density's culture and make us collectively better. And how they handle um, a curveball or two. (laughs) So that I think is a very special thing that we do. Um, And I get to do a lot of them. I love them. But creating and being willing to put your own spin on the hiring process and not doing something because Google does it, but doing something because it helps you as a company test for things that are important to you. And I guess zooming out a little bit, defining what's important to you. I think it's like Amazon that says like tolerate the asshole or something. They have a value that is like, do you oh, know what I'm talking about? No, I feel like, I feel like I've heard the the no assholes rule. I haven't heard the like bring on the assholes rule. I think, I don't know what Amazon feels like it might be them yeah. though. <laughs> but they have a value that's like, if someone's exceptional at their job and they're an asshole, like you tolerate the asshole. Interesting. Which does not personally align with my ethos. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's nice to hear the the kind of, um, I mean, it sounds like this is a very creative process. There, something that I say a lot is there are no rules here. <laughs> we can do whatever we want. And in some yeah. cases that is incredibly true. And in some cases it's incredibly not. But um, I feel really, really grateful to work in an environment that promotes creative thinking and coloring outside the lines and not doing something because it's a quote unquote best practice or the industry standard. It is something that is unique and special and uniquely ours. And 
the willingness to go homegrown is a lot more fun. Um, and it is more true to you, you being the company. Um, it, it sounds like a lot of these, these decisions or these, these things end up very tactical, but they start with like defining a philosophy, um, which, which sounds a little vague, like, but also important if it's upstream of all of these kind of things that have to feel really cohesive to an employee across their whole experience. So like, how does, um, did, did density have a philosophy when you arrived, for example, or Casper, did you have to kind of develop that? Like, how, what is that process? Um, I wouldn't say that we have a written down philosophy in terms of like in general, but there is a shared understanding and willingness to invest in employees and rich benefits that remove stress and make their lives better. So, and now everybody kind of knows like, yeah, lean into more value for the employees, more care for them. You know, you're not trying to minimize the cost per employee of a thing. You know, you're not running the Walmart playbook or something like that. Gone, well, gone are the days of ping pong tables yeah. being the most appealing thing. <laughs> um, and now I think em- employees are craving work-life balance and strong benefits and true wellness, which includes physical, mental, and financial health. And how does the company invest in all three of those things? Um, something my boss says all the time is are healthy, wealthy, and wise, which one does this tie into? Um, and I, how do we invest in bettering our employees and who they are at work and also who they are outside of work? Yeah. And how, how much of that, um, I mean, the, the way you describe some of the internal communications and things, it, it sounds almost like a marketing function, like an internal, like, it, it, is that how you think about it? Kind of, which is why it sometimes sits within marketing. Um, I often talk about my tiny little drum. <laughs> <laughs> and I tell my friends, I've been carrying around my tiny little drum, being, uh, getting interest in trivia night this Thursday. Um, but it is very much marketing and it is internal marketing is what it is. Um, but the, I think the intent behind it is not to knock on marketing, but more pure. Um, we're not trying to sell something. We are trying to better people. For sure. Um, and their perception mm -hmm. is really like what, what matters. And I, I imagine your background in marketing helps you make really good decisions on a lot of those things. Yeah, I do weirdly think, and going from comms PR to HR is a weird pivot, but also was really, really helpful background to have. Um, and at the end of the day, we're running a business and we have an employer reputa reputation to protect and nurture and being conscious of how the things that we do impact our reputation is a really, really important thing. Where, where do you see that reputation? The most tangible example, I guess, would be Glassdoor. Is that something that you pay attention to? Um, do you trust your internal tools more? Like, 
Well, Glassdoor are public reviews of what it's like to work at the company. And that is what a candidate's really only reference point is if they're going to look at it. Um, they would never see what our internal surveys would say. Um, so I think Glassdoor is the most obvious, but also people talk. And when someone joins a new company or when someone leaves a company, I think the ultimate test is if someone leaves a company and still recommends to people that they work at that company. Like there is no greater compliment. Yeah. Um, and creating an environment in which people are going to leave and still recommend working there is, I think, you couldn't ask for anything more. Um. How did you learn all of this? Is that like that may be a strange <laughs> just by being on the team and being around? Like I, I find it really interesting to see like there's a lot of specialized knowledge. Um, but I think like we talked about, there's so much in the gray that a lot of this I just see your common sense as like a huge weapon yeah. in this. Um, I think a lot of this is a lot of it is like gut. A lot of it is knowing when you don't know. Like, that's huge. Saying, I, I don't know. We have to fire someone in the state of California and California is different. And saying, I don't know. And that is infinitely better than acting like you do. Um, and for me, it was just being around e exceptional people who I just, who was a sponge around. Um and I, I think tying back to that lonely piece is when you are the senior most people person, you hold a lot of secrets um, and you are often tasked with making recommendations for difficult things. And I am lucky to have a support group, <laughs> a group of some of my best friends who are also in the people world. Um, and we often will call each other and say like, Hey, can you gut check this with me for a second? And we keep it anonymous and high level, but general frameworks of saying like, this is how I'm thinking about this or face this unique issue that I've never experienced before. And being willing to ask, um, is I think the, the most important thing. Um, and a, a unique thing about the people world is, Marketing is completely different depending on what the company sells and manufacturing is very different and how you sell, but HR is kind of just HR and people do weird things everywhere. And chances are that someone else has experienced this and just using them as a gut check and a point of reference or a different perspective. Mm -hmm. um, we all have our, our own internal tendencies and understanding where yours are is really important also. Mm -hmm. And assuming best intent. When you're in people, it it would be impossible to get up and go to work every day if you thought every employee was out to get you all day long. Like that would be terrible. Um, you could see how people end up like in dark places or with terrible reputations or super crabby if that's the the spiral that they go down. Yeah. And I 
I feel really blessed and people ask me all the time, what's your favorite part of your job? And it, I feel like such a schmuck every time because I'm like, the people. <laughs> and they're like, okay. And I'm like, but it's true. <laughs> and I, I do genuinely get to work with people who are so rooted in kindness that it is heartwarming. And that that is a special energy for a company to have and one that a company is often very intentional about protecting. Um, and I often describe the team as like 180 nerds in the best possible way. Yeah. And that knowing that if someone does something that's frustrating, it's not because they're intentionally trying to frustrate you. It's because they don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and a hundred times out of a hundred, anytime I'm like, Hey, actually we have a process or like, would you mind doing this thing? They're like, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. Or they use it as an opportunity to learn. And that, that is very engaging and also helpful. Yeah. Um, so assuming positive intent and finding a community of people who you can, who you can talk with, mm-hmm. um, and you can give to them in return they also encounter issues where they're like huh <laughs> what, what are some of those crazy things that like stop you in your tracks or oh, um we should have had drinks for this <laughs> <laughs> um i mean i imagine it's hard to get too specific without um yeah perhaps violating some things that once in a while someone will do something so weird that you're just like what went through your head? How <laughs> did you, how, why? Um, and I guess just to, to really bring it home, generally they're not, well, it's not malicious. It's just not knowing. Yeah. And, but there are head scratchers. You're <laughs> <laughs> just like, huh? Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, do you want to do a few more? That's my PR. That's your PR answer. Um, You want to do a few more Twitter questions at the end? Okay. Um, I think this is a, this is a good one that we, we like danced around a little bit. Um, What are the features of cultures that can survive the initial startup phase versus not? And, and how does a company evolve from what might be a very founder led culture to something that may, may not be. Um, Founder led cultures are generally very early and I don't think they are intentional. They are. That's the default almost. Yeah. It is just kind of one of the founders' personalities shining through. And they're the ones who are like kind of beating this little drum of like, hey, let's do a Thanksgiving thing (laughs) for the team. And um, I, I think it is more natural and easy when you are small Mm -hmm. and when you grow up. Um, choosing the things that are yours and you will fiercely protect and choosing the areas in which you are going to embrace change is really important because the reality is, is that a successful company will grow. And when you grow significantly, things change. They just do. And I think this is something that a lot of early employees face is they remember the like, idyllic days of yesteryear of when we were 20 people and we did all these awesome things and 
being able to embrace and celebrate what you can do now as a bigger company that you couldn't do before equally as much as what you could do when you were little is important and being intentional and creating community and space for conversation. So how are you supporting your LGBTQ plus community? How are you supporting um, both those identify as that community and allies? And how are you, but that also extends to human interests, our bookworms and our chefs and our Peloton riders and embracing and creating community and the people who want to shit talk on a Monday morning in the NFL channel, (laughs) you know, and creating space for these, the ability for an employee to bring their whole self to work. And imagine that's gotten uh, like that used to happen organically in an office, maybe in some ways that it has to be very deliberate now remotely. Like, has, has, has this changed? Like, have you felt more of a burden on the people team to create culture as things have gotten more remote? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's no water cooler anymore. Yeah. There's no spontaneous like, hey, let's do this thing. Um, there's no casual chit chat in the kitchen or while you're grabbing lunch yeah. um, and creating and fostering the ability for us to celebrate different things, our differences as much as our, the thing that unites us. Um, It's Chinese new year right now and black history month. And how are we honoring both of those things Mm -hmm. and doing it authentically and genuinely um, is also important. I mean, DEIB is an incredibly important part of a company Diversity, Diversity, equity, equity, inclusion, inclusion. and belonging. Belonging, yeah. And how a company grows and develops and creates space for diverse voices is everything. And it's shared across the board. It's not Mm -hmm. one person's job. It's everyone's job. Um, How how in the culture do you decide what's, um, maybe not decide, but like, how do you productively guide a culture um, and figure out what things need to be like trimmed or pushed back versus like, oh, this is this is the organic nature of an employee that needs to be supported um, versus like that's not the kind of culture we're building here. Right. Um, understanding your values and how they apply to everything is important. And if there is an aspect of your culture that you feel like genuinely is at odds with your values and that's probably time for it to be sunsetted or changed or evolved um i'm trying to think of an example no i I think um i mean the like i like the assholes example actually because a company could very reasonably say like we don't work with assholes and a company could actually i hadn't heard this before but like we will totally tolerate the brilliant jerk um yeah which is an interesting thing and like that's what makes unique cultures and yeah. that's perfectly fine um okay um somebody asked and and i'm curious for your your answer on this too like ha- measuring hr effectiveness over time i think mm-hmm. there's some ways that there's obviously a few probably like just really core metrics there's a ton of really important unmeasurables and then i imagine there's like I mean, back to kind of like building a case for investing in HR. It's very like the second order effect of good people policy is 
a thriving company and a healthy team and a happy team who are all doing good work. And, um, but, but how do you, like, do you, as a people leader, like, do you have a dashboard? Do you look at numbers? Do you, or is there an indicator to you that you're like, Oh shit, that was a bad quarter. Or like, this was a great quarter. That is something, uh, being data driven is something that I am trying to be better and better at. Um, and for people, it's, um, there's a, a few kind of shining metrics that are examples. It's time to fill a role, a role, um, and engagement score and retention. The engagement co- score comes from that survey mm-hmm. and retention. So um, how long employees stay with the company? Mm-hmm. Do you separate like voluntary from involuntary? Yeah. Okay. Um, we we look at voluntary and involuntary retention. Um, there are things that we, like if you've been at the company for less than 90 days, um, we, we, can, we treat different types of employee departures differently because there are different types. For sure. So those are kind of the three main things. Um, it, are there unmeasurables or things that you take into account happiness vibes yeah, good, good vibes, vibes. <laughs> um yeah just like general pride when we send out a holiday gift for the team this year we did we collected recipes from everyone at the company and i <laughs> poor poor coworkers we published a cookbook got into the publishing biz for a hot sec in your spare time and yeah in all of our free time bought a 20 dollar etsy cookbook template <laughs> and then our one of our designers had to completely fix the entire <laughs> thing and we sent every employee a density cookbook the instagram famous pan and a cute towel that says people count calories don't and <laughs> I, there were so many kind and wonderful posts on LinkedIn of employees receiving their boxes, um, because it was a gift that showed we cared and it was a gift that celebrated the employees as much, the collective employees as much as the employee, um, and finding ways to authentically do that, I think is hard but when you do get it right is so so freaking cool it's amazing um this has been an incredible sort of adventure through all of these things we have two pages of notes and checklists and scribbles and things um i feel much smarter about hr and much more understanding about Mm. hr as a result of this journey hr is cool i gotta say HR is cool and HR is everything. It's the company like, behind the company. Your people. Yeah. And I mean, I do genuinely believe that the CEO is a member of the HR team. And I think something that we didn't discuss, we discussed yesterday during the insane planning session that I made you do, <laughs> but is um, the concept of what it means to be a shared service and invest and be a, a giver um, and how that really, really for the right people fills up their cups. So I think I feel lucky to do HR and that my customers are my peers and I'm also my own customer. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, I mean, you you eat the dog food that you make for sure. Yeah. Who does HR for HR? Ah! <laughs> um, but I think HR is having a moment that is overdue and deserved, and I'm excited about it. Yeah, I I think um, I mean we we talked about yesterday how like the it's the most cross functional team that there is. It touches everyone every day. No touching. No touching. Um, it spiritually touches everyone every day. Um, and uh, I mean, do you like? Is it your sense that, um, with with no specifics, like to, to density involved, like what is the what are the opportunities to invest further in HR, and what are the outcomes of like a truly world class HR function? Um, I mean, the outcome of a world-class HR function is the company doing something that's never been done before and achieving what they set out to succeed. Um, if you don't have the people to do it, then how, you can't, you can't even get off the block. Um, so I think the stakes are high. Yeah. Um, and I also, I believe deeply that like work can be fun. And like, let's just have, why, why not have fun? You know, what's the harm in that? We are having fun. Yeah. Are we? <laughs> we are. We're having a great time. Um, but like, if your options are to not have fun or to have fun, why on earth would you pick not having fun? And HR is a lot of fun. <laughs> It doesn't always look fun. Um, Fair to be to be honest from the outside, um, but I know that there is great rewards in it, um, and I am certain that everyone who has been the recipient of your hard work, whether they know it or not, is is deeply appreciative, um, and it's certainly not lost on anybody with a front row seat uh, like I have to the hard work that you do. How important it is um, to the outcome of of any company, and I'm sure there's one or many of you in like somewhere backstage of every great success that um, we all talk about the CEOs of, but not the people teams of. Yeah. Um, I think just, you don't owe your HR person a thanks, but I think just know that they're doing it because they care and it genuinely is fulfilling to people in HR to help fulfill others. And it's a cool thing to feel like you can help other people do the the best work of their lives. And um, it's a gift in and of itself. How, how can a CEO know that they have a, a great HR leader or person? Like if you, if you're, if you're hiring, you know, someone to do your role, like what do you, what do you look for and how do you know that they're doing a great job? Um, someone who aligns with you, ethically on how you want to treat employees, someone who's creative and thinks outside the box and has a deep, deep well of optimism and energy. <laughs> and patience. <I> think, and, <laughs> um, and a willingness to get up after a hard day and do it again. And something that I have learned from you is how do I choose my attitude? And even when you're having a hard day, you're still doing good things. And that is, that is true for everyone, um, especially founders, but 
not losing sight of that. And something that we say a lot to each other is uh, be sweet to yourself. (laughs) Um, And being okay to say, this was a hard day and we're going to, it's 60 degrees in February and we're going to go get tacos on a patio and uh, treat yourself. Tacos, (laughs) good for the soul. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, thank you so much for, for doing this and being a, a guest on the podcast instead of just a an audience member and moral support of the podcast and the roommate on the podcast and roommate <laughs> on the podcast co-producer often um and uh we have brainstorms of many more episodes that we can do together so oh, man uh, perhaps we- we'll make a comeback <laughs> be a, would you like to be a regular on there i don't know we'll see i'll send over my rates i'll take that as a maybe <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Please review, subscribe, and text this episode to a friend. If you liked this episode, you will also love my episode with Andrew Wilkinson on people leverage and my conversation with Shane Mack, where we went deep into company culture, uh, especially in the second half of the conversation. If you want to get in touch with Janine to ask a specific question or just watch her make fun of me in public on Twitter, her handle is at Janine Yeah. J-E-A-N-N-I-N-E-Y-E-A-H. She's an incredibly brilliant and helpful person. um, And I hope that you learned something from her today. I know I did. Thank you. I really appreciate you hanging out with us today. This is all about laughing and learning, building leverage, and compounding our faces off. What our brains aren't evolved to comprehend is how much leverage is possible in modern society. There's a revolution going on, man. Uh, Go pay attention to it. Get a part of it. Get exposed to it. You're going to make money along the way. You're going to have fun. The call to adventure. This is the new form of leverage. Take a few quiet moments for yourself. Breathe deep and be well. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.